0: So we are, we're wrapping up a mini-series within Ephesians today. And the mini-series has been on racial reconciliation. And so week one, um, Vince kind of just brought up this idea of racial reconciliation and then got a lot of emails. Um, week two, he, he brought up the idea how the church itself uh, has some areas to grow in racial reconciliation. And then he used all of your emails in an uh, illustration, and then this week, he didn't get any emails about a sermon. Um, feels manipulative. Uh and then week three, we, we saw kind of uh, the nature of Paul to, to live outside of the church and to bring racial reconciliation outside of the church, and so we decided that we would talk about places where our nation potentially needs racial reconciliation, and so I was just overjoyed when uh, me and Vince decided to preach it this way, and then I saw that my name was next to this week. Um, if, I'm honest, if I'm honest, I, I didn't want to preach this text this way. When I first looked at the text, I just wanted to preach a sermon on people of different like just different kinds of people being united in the gospel. And I think that principle is there, and that principle is all throughout the New Testament as well. But then as I studied the text more closely, and I looked not only in the actual words of this very text, but also the context of the text, what I began to realize was that Paul was speaking about people, that, that, that the gospel was uniting people across ethnic lines, that the gospel was bringing racial reconciliation to Jews and Gentiles in that day like nothing else ever had. And part of why I didn't want to preach it that way at first was one, I, I, don't, I don't think I had studied the text long enough, but part of why I didn't want to preach it that way at first was because I see what's going on out there. I see the racial tensions in our country. I see how people are yelling at each other on the news, how people are yelling at each other on YouTube, how people are yelling at each other on Facebook. They're using all caps to do that. And it, it scares me. It's like I, I don't want to just drag that stuff into the church. There, there's a part of me that's worried about that. Even I've had a lot of conversations about these issues one-on-one in the church, and sometimes, most probably due to myself, they don't always go well. And so I was scared to, to bring this issue up today. But then I, I realized that this issue, although the world treats it one way, the church can, is supposed to treat it differently. We don't have to do what the world is doing. I was reminded of this, this this weekend. So the past few days, me and my wife, we were on a marriage retreat together. And it was at a hotel in downtown Phoenix. And um, we're doing all kinds of exercises during this marriage retreat. There's some uh, great Christian marriage counselors like leading us through this. And, and one night in particular was a night where... Uh, we're, in this, we're on this floor, this third floor that has all these kinds of different conferences and things going on, and so we go into our room, and uh, in our area, we decided that that night was going to be a night where we were going to confess sins in our marriage to one another and just ask for forgiveness. Um, really intense, right? And then there's music, worship music playing, and then there's even communion table set up for us to take communion together um, with our spouse, and so uh, we did all that. It, it was really good, quiet, peaceful, refreshing. Um, even just kind of the Holy Spirit, I think, was there guiding us in that time. And then I walked outside, and, or out, or to really to the bathroom. And uh, on this floor, I was like, "How do you say this? Let's say it." Um, And mind you, there's different things going on on the same floor. And on the very opposite side of the floor, there is a a pool, and there is just the most lit pool party happening ever, right? Like, it is, people are, it's just debauchery. Like, it it was, I've seen a lot of crazy parties, and even I was like, what is happening right now? Like, I'm walking to the bathroom, and there's one of these, like, this kind of drunk guy, just like, where he's like, I think the wall is the floor, and... And I just see that, and he's kind of being escorted out. And I thought, what a contrast between sides of the building. You got one side of the building, some great music is playing, and loud music and just drunkenness and all sorts of things. And you got another side of the building where, where music is also playing, where, there, where there's also alcohol, where there's also people gathered. A lot of the same elements as on the party side, but the church was taking those same elements and they were treating them differently. Now hear me, I think it's okay to go to a dance party. I don't think it's okay to walk out sideways. But (laughs) but, I think for me, seeing that contrast and seeing how the world took a lot of the same elements, music, alcohol, and things, and they did what they wanted with it, and we took those same elements, and we tried to worship God and praise God and strengthen our marriages with it, I think a lot of times when it comes to racial tensions, we need to do the same thing. That we will have to have these difficult conversations about racial tensions in our country, but we don't have to have them in the same way that the world has them. We can do it all together differently. And I think it's needed. Um, Here's why I think it's needed. Uh, recently, there, and I got this from a David Platt sermon, so I'm just completely ripping it from him. And uh, he, he, saw some, he found some research where these researchers, they just wanted to find out what people in America, especially white people and black people, thought about the racial tensions in our country and, and how they're caused and how they exist. And basically, they, they gave you kind of three realms to think about. Uh, one realm was that the, the disparities between black people and white people, and so they showed in this research, they showed all these disparities between uh, white Americans and black Americans. There's just disparities in income, disparities in health, disparities in all these sorts of things, disparities in um, medical services provided, is actually what I meant by health. And, and, and then they just said, why do you think these exist? And there, there was kind of these three realms. The first realm was that these disparities exist due primarily to a lack of individual responsibility. Basically, like a lack of personal motivation for, of the individual to just work hard and get out of their situation and climb out of poverty. Then, kind of, the next area was, uh, these things are due to a lack of education. And then, the third area was uh, that they would say that, that these disparities were due because of unjust systems and, and discrimination in society, and so uh, will you throw up that first slide, Morgan. And so this is where the what the research has found. So that line, that green line right there, over more towards the left, where they're blaming the disparities on uh, individual responsibility and personal motivation. That is what white, just white people answered when they looked at these disparities. That's where they kind of lined up, maybe a little bit towards unequal education, but mostly towards individual responsibility and personal motivation you could go to slide two so slide two this is where black americans lined up they they said hey this is there are unjust systems in place and discrimination happening uh here and then go to slide three they did something else with the research and they they said hey we're gonna ask people that are professing christians where they think this stuff happens and what what is the cause of this stuff and so that big green line right there, that's where white Christians lined up, even farther over into individual responsibility and personal motivation as being the problem for these disparities. And you can finally go to slide four. And this is where black Americans lined up, all the way farther over into unjust systems and discrimination as the cause for this. And they were, they, those were professing Christians, as well. So the big lines are professing Christians, the little lines are are non-Christians. And when I saw this, I was disheartened. Now listen, I'm not saying what the cause is of those things, although I I, I kinda will in the sermon. Um, But, I, I think the Bible does speak to both sides of that. But what's so sad to me is white Christians and black Christians are so far apart Look how far apart we are. No wonder in John 17, one of Jesus' last prayers for the church is a a prayer that we would be united. That there would be unity amongst us. And when it comes to what is the cause of racial disparities in our, our nation, our nation is less divided than the church. So you could be here and you could say, Anthony, why are we talking about this? Why are we spending three weeks on this? First, I would say, because the text is talking about it. But two, I would say, because of this. Look how far off we are. My, my goal isn't that we just line up in the same way after this, but my, lineup, my, my goal is that we would be a little bit more united after today on this issue. So um, you can take the slide down. So two things before I kind of tell you what where we'll go today, two things that I thought were really important, and they're both things that Vince talked about the past two weeks. So if you ha- if this is your first time, welcome. Um, but if this is um, your first time here for this series, I would say go back to the podcast, download the podcast, listen to those sermons. It's some of the best sermons I've heard Vince preach ever. Don't tell him I said that. Um, yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> And uh, they were really good. But he gave us parameters in each of the weeks that I thought would be helpful for today. One of those parameters is, he goes, don't make this too political. Because what happens is sometimes we get to church and we think that the preacher is just pushing his political agenda to get you to vote for his political candidates and all that kind of stuff. Guys, I don't even know what I want to vote most of the time. So although there will be issues in the Bible that are political because just they are, We want to be biblical, not political. And so don't make it too political. And then also, this is just for some of you, know in your heart which which issues bother you when they're talked about at church. Is it just the political issues that you don't line up with? Or is it all political issues in general? Because I think very often, sometimes we do preach about other political issues and we don't get as much feedback. We don't get as much pushback. And I don't know why that is. I'll tell you in a few minutes why. But, but I just want us to note that. All right, so that's one thing. Don't over-politicize this. Remember, we're trying to be biblical here, not political. Secondly is, uh, Vince talked about how... The, how Each as individuals, God is sanctifying us. That means he's making us more like Jesus over time. Like none of us, very few of us really would debate that. Like as soon as you become a Christian, it's not like, hey, this person is exactly like Jesus, right? We'd say, no, it's going to take a lifetime. And even when I get to the end of my life, until glory and Jesus returns, I won't be fully like Jesus yet. And so so he said, hey, we should apply that to the church itself. Like the church itself, if it's made up of those sorts of individuals, then the church itself is going to need growth in, in the area of racial reconciliation that we are being sanctified as a church. And I just want us to remember that because there will be moments today where maybe you will feel angry or maybe you want to push back and I will say, hey, God wants to sanctify us. So two notes, two things to think about today. And then I want to say this, I, get, I know that I'm a white guy I'm not preaching this because I have white guilt. I'm not preaching this because uh, I I read too many BuzzFeed articles. I'm not preaching these things uh, because I've been formed in some way by the culture. And maybe there's parts that are and and throw those parts out. But I'm preaching this because I really do think that God is speaking this to our church. I really do think that I can't take what is happening in Ephesians of God going across ethnic lines with the gospel and reconciling people. I can't take that and apply it however I want. I have to look at that specific context, and I have to look and see that maybe we as the church need that too. Because I do think God's word is for all people in all times and all places. Okay? So this is my hope for today. We're going to read Ephesians. We're going to see that the gospel does cross ethnic lines. And then we're going to see how it motivated Paul to live. And then we're going to take some time and we're going to look at some stats about our nation that alarm me. And then we're going to see uh, what idols in our nation, I think, caused some of those stats to exist. And then we're going to see how Jesus subverted those idols. All right, so let's hop into the text. Ephesians chapter 3. You can turn there now. Ephesians chapter 3. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We'll hand out some Bibles. We like to give anybody that doesn't have a Bible a Bible. So if you don't own a Bible, keep this Bible, please. If you do own a Bible, you can just set it somewhere on your way out. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to read the first five verses together, but we're going to be in six verses total. So this is what it says. For this reason... So Paul says, he goes, I'm a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, essentially because God has given him this this mysterious word to steward, this this mystery that's been made known to him that that wasn't made known in previous generations, that people didn't know until now, until what what God was doing through the Holy Spirit in the first century church. And that the prophets and the apostles, so it's not just Paul with something rogue here, but that he was speaking this to the whole church, this mystery. And Paul says, that mystery has caused me to be in prison on Jesus's, for Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. And this is why we're getting kind of into the national component, because Paul, the gospel is causing him to, to relate to his nation in a way that's putting him behind bars. Okay, And so what is this mystery, though, that, that the early church was given, that Paul was given to steward, that Paul seemed to be um, some sort of a head steward or something like that, over? Verse 6 tells us what this mystery is. It says this, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this is the mystery that God has given the early church and God has specifically given Paul to steward. That Jew and Gentile are now, they, they are both able to accept the gospel. They are both able to worship the one true God of the universe. It is no longer just an ethnic Jewish faith, but it is a faith that crosses ethnic lines and brings in people of different nations. And Paul says this is a mystery. This is a mystery to him. Uh, Just think about Paul's background growing up as kind of like a super Jew and just a Pharisee and just he knew God's word so well that this was such an alarming thing for him. Right? He saw that sign in the temple that said Gentiles that come into the inner courts, they only have themselves to blame for their impending death. He used to be like, I love that sign. He used to make those signs and sell them on Etsy, I bet. And Paul is, knows that through the gospel, God is doing something different. And so that's why Paul is like, this is a mystery. And this mystery of Paul wasn't of Paul, that, that God gave the early church and God was doing was not just something that Paul was content just to think about or talk about or only talk about in the church. This was something he proclaimed to non-Christians and Christians alike. And here's how we know. In Acts 21 and 22, we get this story of Paul being arrested. And this is why he's arrested. You can see this in Acts 21. is because he brought a Greek Ephesian into the temple to worship God. That's why he was being arrested. You could see it there in Acts 21. I can only imagine that if Paul now, as a Christian, points to that same sign and says, that sign's not okay. That sign is not right. Now, what's confusing to me about this is he's not talking to a bunch of Christians. He's talking to a bunch of non-Christians, Jewish people, telling them about the reconciliatory nature of the gospel, So Paul was not content with just telling people about the vertical, the reconciliation between us and God of the gospel, but he had to talk about the horizontal, reconciliatory nature of the gospel, reconciling us to one another as people, and not just in the church. He's telling non-Christians about this, and then this is what we know infuriates them, is in Acts 22, he gives this speech. In Acts 22, he he basically, these Roman centurions or whatever are taking Paul and and arresting him and taking him on the way to jail. And Paul goes, whoa, wait, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. Can I say something to the crowd? And they're like, sure, dude. And so Paul just starts saying to the crowd of Jewish people, he starts saying, hey, listen, here's my testimony. And he just starts sharing how God struck him off with bright light and blinded him and did all these crazy things. And then he's, he's like anybody that shares their testimony. He's jumping to when he got saved and jumping back to when he wasn't saved and jumping back and forth and not telling it very well. And, and he's doing this over and over again. And he's saying all sorts of crazy claims about Jesus being God and the Messiah and these sorts of things. And then we're going to see what really riles up the crowd. Verse 20, he's jumping back and forth again, ending this speech. Although he didn't know it was soon to be over. And he says this. This is Paul mid-sentence. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And so he's saying, in my old life, I was applauding and helping you kill Christians. And then he talks, verse 21, and he said to me, this is God speaking to Paul, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now look what the crowd does. Verse 22, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And then they just lose it. What was bothering the crowd that day? It wasn't the, the, the vertical reconciliation between God, God and man. It was the horizontal reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Paul didn't even say, hey, they're going to be start coming into the church yet. All he said was, I'm supposed to go and bring those Gentiles who are far off. And they lose it. Paul was in prison because he talked about racial reconciliation. And he didn't just talk about it in the church. He talked about it to non-Christians as well. He thought it was important for him to, to fight for justice. Which is such a charged word today. I often meet young Christians that don't quite understand what God's justice means, and I meet older Christians who don't even like saying the word justice. But I think Paul was motivated by justice. I think sometimes we think of justice as, as punishing evil, which that is a component of justice for sure. But in the Bible, it seems this picture of justice is much more a picture of righting wrongs. As when we see something that is wrong that we would right it, that we would make sure that that doesn't stay long, wrong for long. And all throughout the Old Testament, God tells his people to do justice. In Micah 6.8, that's exactly what he says. Do justice amongst other commands that he gives them. In Isaiah 1.17, this, this uh, verse was particularly convicting to me it says that we should seek justice so we should look to right wrongs but not only that it says we should correct oppression note what isaiah is saying there he's not saying you are the oppressors stop oppressing he's saying if you see oppression correct it that's what we're called to as god's people In Proverbs 31, it talks about how we need to defend the rights of those in need in verses 8 and 9, to give voice to the voiceless. I think this is what motivated Paul. I think once the gospel, once he actually believed the gospel, he began to see these verses in a new light. He began to see that it was wrong to keep the Gentiles out from their place of worship. That they deserved, in a sense, to be in there, not because of anything they did, but because of what God was doing in history. And I just wonder, are we we that motivated to do justice? I don't know if I was put in a situation where I had to live out finding justice for someone else, and then it caused me to be in jail if I would still do it, if I would still talk about it. But Paul was willing to, and so I want to share. I want to share some stats of things going on in our our nation, because if we're gonna, if we're supposed to seek justice, if we're supposed to correct oppression, then we need to look at some numbers and some things and say, is this happening in our nation? Are these sorts? Are there places where justice is needed? And maybe you're here, you're already sitting, you're like, I don't think there is, Anthony. Stop it. I would say, please don't make me stop, And, but I would also say, hey, will you just sit with this, and will you look at these stats, and will you let them just alarm you? Maybe take the Proverbs 31 route where it talks about us helping the needy. Maybe that's just the situation that we're in that we need to bring justice to, but I do think it's more than that, and so I want to read some stats. I'm going to read all kinds of stats right now. Um, the first set of stats are going to show some disparities. This is also, this part is from a book called Divided by Faith uh, that uh, David Platt also recently uh, read these set of stats right here in a sermon. And, and it's talking about the difference between, the disparities between white Americans and, and black Americans. And the reason we're showing these disparities in particular is because this is, racially, this is some of the biggest disparities we have in our nation is between white and black And so I want to read them, and let's just see what they say. I need a drink. First this. Um, Black Americans are much more likely to be unemployed than white Americans. The current ratio of two unemployed black people for every one unemployed white person has held pretty constant since 1950. Income inequality between white and black people is close to 50% worse which is wider today than it was 40 years ago. Um, African-American babies die at a rate of over twice the frequency of white babies. African-American mothers are are four times more likely to die in childbirth than white American mothers. And then young African-American males are, are six times more likely to be murdered, just murdered in general, than young white American males. Now listen, I, I want to be clear here. I'm not trying to paint a picture of black America as as poor and uneducated. I'm trying to paint a picture of there are disparities that exist. And if we really believe that the image of God is on everyone and sin is equally, equally within everyone, then these disparities should bother us. They should make us go, why is this happening? Because we are to seek justice. We are to do justice. We are to correct oppression. So that, those were some disparities between um, white people and black people. Then I asked uh, a brother in Christ in our church who, who's Native American, I asked him, hey, I want to s- share any stats that you think would be important this upcoming Sunday that you think it would be good for the church to hear. And so he sent me some things and and a lot of this data is just from census government data I want you guys to know too. It's not like um you know some kind of media outlet you hate data. It's it's like it's good data. Notice I said two different pronunciations there. Um, and so he sent me some some links uh of things that Native people have to deal with. So the first one is this. Native people, they die at higher rates than other Americans from a variety of things. One of those things is tuberculosis. They die at 600% higher than all other Americans. Alcoholism, 510% higher than all other Americans. Diabetes, 189% higher. Vehicle crashes, 229% higher that people die from vehicle crashes. From injuries they sustained in any way, they die at a rate of 152% higher. And from suicide, they die at a rate of 62% higher. Um, Native youth have the highest rate of suicide among all ethnic groups in the US, and it's the second leading cause of death for Native youth. The number $37,227 is the median household income of a Native American household in 2014. Um, This compares with, at the same time, uh, the median median household income of $53,657 for the rest of the nation. And so there's about a $15,000 difference there, more than $1,000 a month. 28.3% twenty eight point three percent of native peoples live in poverty. that means more than one in four and that's opposed to the national average of fifteen and a half percent that that more than one in four of native peoples are living where their their just basic needs cannot be met and i I, re, I wanted to read some about our native brothers and sisters, because we have a lot of those in this city. And I'm disgusted, frankly, by some of the conversations I have with people about our native brothers and sisters at times. Now, again, I don't quite know all of what's causing each one of these disparities, but again, these disparities should still alarm us. We should seek to bring justice. Something is wrong here. And as Christians, we are called to try and make it right. I want to talk about education rates. I'm going to keep going. I want to talk about education rates. Um, just a few different stats that stood out to me. Uh, recently, the Department of Education, because a lot of different groups were doing uh, research on this, and the Department of Education was alarmed by this, they did a, some research to see how many um, African-American kids were, were being suspended um, in, in school and see if it was disproportionate to the amount of, of white kids or all other kids suspended in school. And so they started at preschool. They started at preschool where kids are three and four, and what they found was that black children make up sorry black children make up 18% of preschoolers but they make up 48% of preschoolers that have been suspended more than once and then if you just look at preschoolers who have been suspended once it's 42% this troubles me because sin is just as much in me as it is in anybody with darker melanin than me. So it should be 18% and 18%. And it's starting all the way at 3 and 4, something troubling to me. Um, On average, class sizes are 15% uh, larger overall in schools that are predominantly of minority populations. Um, Now, that takes into account special education classrooms in those schools, which are often resource rooms or smaller rooms with smaller amounts of students, like uh, anywhere in the one to five range at times, or or a little bit more than that too. And so when they took out the special education classrooms in those schools, what they found was that in minority schools, the average classroom is 80% higher than in white schools in how many students are in that class, almost double the size. Of, of the average white student's classroom. Uh, they found, they did some more research, and they looked at, and they saw that blacks and Latinos, that they make up uh, 42% of the student body in, in schools uh, with gifted classes. And so then they want to see how many of those students were actually in gifted classes, enrolled in gifted classes, and it was only 28%. So not an even numbering. And then if you just look at many other rates in minority schools of teacher qualification, resources provided, all sorts of other things, you're going to find huge disparities. That should trouble us. Finally, I want to read incarceration rates. These are probably some of the most controversial numbers because there's a lot of pundits out there speaking on why they think this is happening. But again, the image of God is on all of us, and sin is in all of us. And so the incarceration rates of a country should look like the demographics of that country. And so the, I, I won't lie to you, the U.S. Uh, demographics uh, and incarceration rates are horrible. They're disheartening. Um, but I'm going to look at just our state, Arizona's incarceration rates. Native peoples make up 5% of our population in the state as a whole, but then they make up 10% of the Arizona prison population. Hispanic people, they make up 30% of our state population, but they make up 41% of the Arizona prison population. African American people make up 4% of our state's population, and yet, they make up 12% of our prison population, tripled. And then, whereas white people, we make up 58% of the Arizona population, and yet, we only make up 35% of our prison population. This troubles me because as I did a deep dive looking at incarceration rates and what's causing them, there's a lot more troubling numbers than just the demographics of our prisons. They recently did a study, and they were looking at how many, what are the demographics of the average crack user in our country? Fun stuff. And they were looking at who's using crack cocaine in our country, and they wanted to just map that out and, and look at the demographics. And what they found was it pretty much looked like our country. So 13% of crack users were African American, uh, as opposed to, to, to more or less. And that's about how much uh, African, how many African American people are in our country. It's about 13%. So then uh, another group looked at how many defendants in the federal system are on trial for doing crack cocaine, and how many of them were African-American. And they found that 90% were African-American. 90% of all defendants. That's troubling. That's really troubling because we have things that show that, that our African-American brothers and sisters are not the only ones using crack cocaine, and then that it's at a rate pretty equal throughout our country, and yet they make up 90% of defendants in the federal system. And I think Christians were really bad at unifying on this issue of what's, what's needed in racial reconciliation often we as Christians, we do go to that other side or that side of the graph that says, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But some of these numbers, they alarm me. And if you did a deeper dive looking into disparities as things, you're going to find that there are more and more alarming numbers. I'm not trying to bash our nation. But what I'm trying to say is that we are as Christians, together, make up a different sort of nation. We make up one new nation. That's what Ephesians is talking about. We are God's people. So although we are citizens of this nation, we can call this nation out when we see problems. And so I think that these issues happen because of a variety of things, but I think they they happen because in our nation, there are idols that we worship. Now, if you don't know about idols, in the Old Testament, they would take idols that were like for um, having good grains or good rains for their fields or love or different things and they would carve something that represented one of those things and they would worship that thing in hopes to get more of that. And it wasn't always like that, but uh, they would worship these idols. They would put these fake things in the place of God. And so for us today, I think an idol is anytime we take something and we worship it and we put it in the place that only God should exist. And so I think that our nation as a whole, I think there are some idols there that we are prone to that might be the cause of some of these numbers. That might be the cause of some of these disparities. And so I want to talk about three different idols. Now listen, this is going to hurt for some of us, Because when we begin to attack things that you love, we get defensive, right? But Christian, remember, God has given us a new citizenship, and it's part of his kingdom. Russell Moore, who's great at talking about the Christian and politics, and Vince Bacotti as well, but Russell Moore says this, he says, We can meet Americans best if we're not Americans first. And so I'm going to say some things, some idols that I think are happening, and I think that these idols are what cause some of these disparities. The first idol is this, is the idol of security. It's where what is most important to us is that we're secure, and we're safe, and we're not hurt. And we put that up in God's place, and we worship that, and we chase after that, more than we chase after God and His ways and places that He might lead us. And this idol leads to a lot of symptoms like fear and anxiety. But I think in regards to racial reconciliation, I think the symptom that it brings forth is fear of the other. Fear of anyone that's different. And I think we have that idol in our nation. I don't know if it's in our church. I hope not. But I think we have that idol in our nation where we fear the other. This is why when Vince sits down at a restaurant in Prescott, a woman asks him if he's Islam. And then when he says, no, I'm not Muslim, she says, okay, good. She had an idol of security. She's scared for herself. For the Christian, this shouldn't be an idol. Because God is our security. God makes us secure. Imagine if this was an idol for Paul. He'd be like, I'm writing from my really nice home in Jerusalem. But instead, he writes from prison. And so when we see that in our nation, when we see it causing oppression to happen, that idol of security, we should speak out against it. We should live differently. All right, the next idol that I see that I think causes racial oppression, racial tensions is the idol of nationalism. This is where you take our nation and you put it up above God, and you put its character above God, or sometimes it's equal to God's character, I think, if we're honest. And we care more about the way of America than we care about the way of God. It's kind of this take-it-or-leave-it mentality about America. You don't like it? Leave. Leave. Imagine if a kid who was being abused came up to you and said, My dad is hitting me. And you said, Take it or leave it. That's the family God's put you in. But we say it about our country. And I just want to say this. We don't, as Christians, we don't have to stick up for America. If we see our country doing something wrong, if we see laws specifically that are unjust, we can speak out against them. You don't have to defend a broken law as a Christian. And if you don't like this idea, listen, I love America. Just ask Vince and Andy. They're trying to get me to go guamala, and I'm like, no, I like it here. (laughs) Right? So it's okay to love your country, so don't hear that. But it's not okay to worship your country and act as if it never does anything wrong. And so if what I'm saying right now is hard for you, I would say, hey, I bet reading the Old Testament is hard for you as well. Because the prophets are constantly ordained by God to call out their nation and other nations. I get into Zechariah and I'm like confused. and I'm like, who is this country and what are they doing? God is calling out sin wherever sin exists. And so we need to be careful as Christians to not let this idol creep in where we think, oh, there's nothing wrong with America. We're not doing anything wrong here. And again, I love our country. I love a lot of the things we've done. I love the progress we've made. But that doesn't mean progress is over in this area. Maybe it is, but I don't think it is. And we have to remember we can be Americans' best Christians if we're not Americans first. And so when we see this idol of nationalism, we should not be afraid to call it out. We should not be afraid to (laughs) know that it's a false god that no one should worship, not just Christians, but no one should worship. So that's the second idol. So the first idol of security, the second idol of nationalism, the third idol I see is the idol of power. So power is the ability to affect reality. Power is just being able to control your surroundings and the things around you. And if we're going to be honest, historically, for minority peoples in our country, they have not had a lot of power. And then if we're honest, too, for, for many years, and I think it even happens today, powerful people, they just have this inclination to keep power to themselves. It's kind of the draw of that idol and that sin. And what's more is a lot of times powerful people, they will only want other people to have power who are like them. It might just be ideologically, but I think unfortunately in our country, sometimes it's due to the amount of melanin in our skin. I don't know if they're consciously making those decisions sometimes, those that are in power, but I think subconsciously they might be because of sin. And so I think a a symptom of the idol of power are these incarceration rates. I, I really do. I think the fact that black children in America in preschool are getting suspended at such amazingly high rates is because of the idol of power. And so, listen, I know this is hard to hear for some people, but let it be hard. Because turning over idols, breaking down idols, is difficult work sometimes we need to be people that tear down idols in our own lives and even in our nation's life for the good of them, for the good of the gospel, because the gospel unites us under God. And I just want to, I just, I'm thankful for Jesus because he lived so subversively to those idols. Right? Jesus never had the idol of security. He laid down his security in heaven and came to earth and faced danger and toil. He faced sinners. He faced temptation. He faced pain. He had to run away to Egypt as a refugee at one point. He laid down his security so that more people could one day be secure in God. Jesus laid down his citizenship in heaven so that others might have a citizenship with God, that Jesus would be their king over all else. Jesus gave up of his power in a sense when he came to earth. Right? He's fully man and fully God, but he ex- purposely limited himself as fully man. And so he gave up of his power so that we in the world might know God's true power. The gospel is just a story of Jesus subverting these idols He shows us his holiness, not worrying about his own security. He he calls out idols, not worrying about his security. He dies on the cross, showing us that God's power is so different than any earthly power. And then he resurrects to show us what this new citizenship in his kingdom looks like. What if we could live that way? What if we could set aside our security, our power, our nationalism to help others find God, to help others see God? It says that people will see our good works and potentially give God glory. So when we live out the gospel, people will see that. We need to speak it too, but people will see it and they'll begin to know and understand Jesus and his ways. Years ago, We'll close with a story. Years ago, I, was, uh, I went to ASU, Forkham. Uh, and uh, there, at ASU, this happened. It happens at NAU too, but there would be these street preachers that would come out. And these street preachers would just, they'd have these vulgar signs, and they, they would say these things to people. They'd call everybody sinners, and they would tell everybody to repent, and they would really demean women in particular, I noticed for how they were dressed and calling them sinners, that they're going to go to hell. And what would happen is the Free Thought Society, which was the atheist club on campus, they would, they would rally together and they would come and they would face off with the guy with the sign or the people with the signs and, and they would just yell back and forth. And they would say, God's not real because of this. And he would say, you are a sinner because of this. And, and it would just be like that. And it would, for me as a Christian, it was so disheartening to see Because I looked at this guy, and he's not giving a full story of the gospel at all. He's just mostly calling people sinners. He's mostly telling people to repent, which both things are important to to the gospel. But he was proclaiming a works-based gospel where we could climb our way to God. He was missing grace. He was missing Jesus. He was missing God's love. He was missing God's mercy. He was missing all sorts of things. And so it was hard for me because I would look out at this crowd and I would see this face-off between the atheist and this supposed Christian, and I would just say, where are the real Christians? Where are the real Christians? And then I would start to become part of the crowd in hopes of kind of talking to this guy and just saying, hey, what are you doing? And what I noticed in the crowd was I would see some of my Christian friends. And I would see some uh, other Christians from other clubs on campus, Christian clubs on campus, uh, pulling aside some of the louder atheists and getting in one on one conversations about Jesus with. And as the years went on at ASU, I saw more and more Christians doing this. And it totally subverted these preachers that were screaming about sin because there would be a, a hundred different little conversations happening about the true gospel and the real Jesus in their midst. Real things were happening. When it comes to racial tensions, we see it all over our country. And for me and for our church, I don't want to have to say, where are the Christians? I want to say they're right there. They're in the midst. They're working. And I know some of you are, and I thank you for that. I know, especially my minority brothers and sisters in Christ, you've been patient with guys like me to help me understand and learn these things. But redemption... I want us to be able to look out at the racial tensions of our world, the places where racial reconciliation is needed, and I want us to be able to say, there's the Christians in the midst. There's the work they're doing. There's the justice they're bringing. Because we believe in a gospel that crosses ethnic lines, that can unite people of absolute differences. Let's be that church, amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, forgive me if I said anything out of hand right now. But God, also thank you that your word points us to to more racial reconciliation, points us to, to the gospel crossing ethnic lines. God, help us to see in our particular worlds where we are called to be where we're called to go. It's easy, God, to talk about this in generalizations. It's a little bit harder to talk about this in specifics. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you give us the creativity to know where we are to bring justice and to know how we are to bring justice in this area of racial reconciliation. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, you're the only one that can bring true, restorative, racial reconciliation. Build our church, God, into this church that we see in Ephesians, where Jew and Gentile are made up into one body, one temple, to represent heaven on earth. God, help us. We need you. Amen.